So all we can do is stand at the wall with them and say, I, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And you can trust me for a moment and I can hold hope for you in this moment when you can't hold it yourself. Welcome to Taste and See. This is a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. Season 4. The Church is Dying. Or is it? Well, hey everybody. Welcome back to Taste and See. This is a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. It's a ministry I'm a part of here. My name is Gray Ewing, and I'm the pastor of Ascension Church of Phoenix, uh, in the Midtown Central Phoenix area. And I love to do this podcast with my good friend, Ted, who can introduce himself now. Yeah. Uh, it's Welcome back, everybody, to episode four of season four. Maybe there's some symmetry in that. Episode four, season four, for you people that are into numbers. I don't know why I said that. That's really weird. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's good to be back with everyone. I'm Ted Wiesty, the director of the Spiritual Formation Society. And we are... Um, so excited about the conversations we're getting to have this season of the podcast, which we're titling The Church is Dying. Or is it? I think every time you do that, the space gets a little longer. Well, I was telling someone the other day about yeah. that, and they said, you should elongate the space every episode. And by the end, it's like a <laughs> it's like a 30-second pause, and people are just on the edge of their seat. What comes <laughs> next? So that is what we're trying to do is be honest about what's happening in the church today, what the things that we're seeing and engaging it and talking about it in a way that we're tilting toward hope because that is the direction of the gospel, death, burial, resurrection. So if we're seeing something dying, we want to pay attention to, is there something dying? What does that mean in terms of living into a gospel reality? So um, yeah, so that's what we're doing on, on this season of the podcast. And uh, today we welcome Summer Gross. And, and Summer, I got to meet you uh, back in August at a conference with Healing Care Ministries, which our last episode was with Terry Wardle, who's the um, leader of that ministry. And I got to meet you there because we were both speaking and, and doing some things at that conference. And, and I'm just so glad that you can join us in our conversation today. Uh, it's such a privilege. I really appreciated the space that you brought to remind us how to be spiritual directors and create space for other people's stories. So I just really appreciated the presence that you brought to that conference. Oh. So glad, Summer. Well, just as an introduction to our listeners, I I know you a little bit. We've gotten to know each other a little bit. I don't know you super well, um, but I know that um, you are a spiritual director. You are a writer. I believe you are ordained in the Anglican Church. Am I getting that right? You are Correct. a wife. You are a mother. Um, so many different hats, and yet none of those things uh, scratch the surface of the depths of who you are, I know. 
Um, but anything else you'd want to share um, just by way of introduction? Um, I run a ministry called The Presence Project, and I get to podcast over there. I get to invite people to um, twice monthly retreats and do spiritual direction groups through that. Uh, I also have the privilege of being married to my high school sweetheart, and our first date, yes, was prom. Oh my goodness. And not only was it prom, but both of us were supposed to be going with other dates until we decided, hey, we would like a chance to date. So there was awkwardness all over the place as all four of us shared at a um, limo going to and from. <laughs> Anyways, but um, I've got three teens and Man, it is just really interesting how much internal work comes up through having teenagers. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm I have a 20 and a 23-year-old, so I'm sort of past that but not really cuz especially with the pandemic it kind of set back some of those things. So sometimes I feel like I have two teenagers still and and Gray, you're about to move into it in a couple of years. I got preteens. I got preteens, so which is always fun. So yeah, it's a nice little uh, family sandwich we got represented here. Uh and uh yeah. Yeah, it's good to hear your story. I also am married to my high school sweetheart, so we we are uh joined in that. Me too. No way. Well, wow. here we go. Well, I was thinking when you're talking about awkward, so I started dating my wife, Jennifer, probably a couple of weeks before prom. Okay. Wow. And so I already had a prom date and it was a friend. It wasn't, you know, a romantic thing as much as you're going to be romantic at 18 years old. But um, yeah, I went to prom with someone and thought about my wife the whole night. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm eating the food and I'm like, why am I not here with Jennifer? This person is wonderful. They're nice, but oh, I wish I was here. And, uh, you know, okay, a couple years later, we're married. So here's where the story breaks for us. This has nothing to do with prom, just summer camp. So we're one of those Christian summer camp uh, couples. I love summer camp. Are you kidding? Oh, that's fantastic. Just oh, think if you'd, married someone, if you'd married someone with the last name Camp, that would be kind of, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so here is where it went to you guys. It went from, my last name was Myers. So listen to the symmetry of that. Summer Myers. My middle name is Joy. Summer Joy Myers. It sounds like poetry, right? And then I married a guy who's from German descent. And so my last name is Gross. It was such a space of humility for me. Wow. Yeah. But yeah. worth it. But worth it for the guy, it sounds like. A hundred percent. We've been on quite the journey. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, we've mentioned a few good things. Prom, marrying high school sweethearts. Breakfast is another one of those things that I would put in the list of of things that are amazing. And it's something that we are enjoying. Did you like that segue? I like it. I like uh, it. Yeah. Uh, we are enjoying breakfast every time, no matter what time of the day it is, whenever we do these recordings, because breakfast is always a good idea. The model for this is Jesus in John chapter 21, where he meets his disciples, serves them breakfast, has that beautiful conversation with Peter, really about the church, about, you know, um, you know, if you love me, then feed my sheep, you know. And so that being kind of the backdrop for this season and also the backdrop for the whole podcast, which is to taste and see that is to literally taste the good things that God's given us 
and also, you know, see each other and, and be together. And so we're excited to have Summer not only talk with us, but also eat with us for a few minutes, which we don't do online, so you don't have to hear us chewing. Uh, but we do eat breakfast, and it sounds like, Summer, you have a breakfast. What, what are you eating today? So I am a big fan of breakfast and I love to fix my breakfast, my kids breakfast, like for dinner, we call it Brinner. Anyways, um, today I am having an omelet with Borsan cheese in it, Wow! which is delicious if you've never had it. Oh my goodness. So did, then, you, did you make this omelet yourself? I did. I just yeah. made the omelet uh, recently. I decided I am going to learn how to make an omelet. And so I watched a couple of videos and whatever. I'm also having a um, decaf latte or a decaf cappuccino that I just made from my little homemade espresso machine, percolator machine. And which reminds me of Italy. And uh, back in July, we got to have a morning cappuccino in Italy for an entire month, which was lovely. Wonderful. Wow. That sounds amazing. We're having a kind of a second, second breakfast here today, uh, Ted and I. It's basically enough calories in the cup uh, for a whole breakfast, but it actually is just a coffee drink. Um, so I, this was my idea. I wanted to have this. This is from Moxie Coffee, which is down the street from our church in, in central Phoenix. And uh, Moxie is great, wonderful place to hang out, probably the go-to spot for most of the people in our church and our staff when we're meeting people and that kind of thing. And uh, they have a very special drink called the, uh, is it cold brew, chicory cold brew? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So it's chicory flavored. And if you don't know what that is, um, that is from the state of Louisiana, which I grew up two and a half hours from New Orleans. And I believe my co-host here is from Louisiana originally. That's where I was born. Yeah. So I grew up knowing about chicory coffee. We always had a can of it in our house. Chicory coffee is not something you'd see around in Phoenix very much, uh, but it is a root that is sometimes used instead of coffee that doesn't have caffeine. This is actually cold brew that has chicory flavoring in it. So it does have caffeine and it is coffee, but uh, it's, a, it's a little taste of home. I used to, I grew up two hours away driving to New Orleans all the time. We would go to Cafe du Monde where we would, you know, mm. eat the uh, beignets and drink chicory coffee. And uh, so I, as a Southerner displaced to Phoenix, it, uh, it brings back some of those uh, Southern flavors. Yeah. When I, when you told me about it, I was like, oh, that sounds great. And, but the, one of the first things I did was I Googled chicory. Cause I'm like, I remember growing up and we always had a can of it in the house and I drank it at Cafe Du Monde and all that, but I don't think I ever really knew exactly what chicory was. So I, I had a little Google lesson on chicory this morning. So. Does it taste kind of licorice-y? I've it, always wondered. It's a, it's a hard flavor to describe. You're not off. You're not off 100%. Uh, it's, it's a little metallic. It's a little, what? Um, a little bitter. Bitter, uh, but also kind of a like a bitter with a sweetness underneath, like something was burned in a skillet. <laughs> I don't know. That's not a bad description. It's like something sweet was burned in a skillet and it cooked a little too hard. And the smell of that is what it kind of tastes like. And uh, it is an acquired taste. It's not for everybody. Uh, I have shared this drink with some people that are kind of like, mm, yeah, take it or leave it. But well, and this drink is not 
super chicory yeah. to me. Because yeah. I, you know, I would, you drink it straight, right? Right. Like a Cafe du Monde or something. But yeah. um, anyway, it's good. Moxie Coffee, I think we're going to be able to give them a good, you know, thumbs up after this. That's right. Well, we're looking forward to our conversation with Summer and we will dive into that in just a minute. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Taste and See podcast, a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. Our vision for the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona is to create space for leaders and learners to grow in deeping intimacy with God. Check out sfsaz.org for more information and resources, and consider joining us at an upcoming event. Now back to the podcast. And we are back, Ted. What's well, your What's your review? I I give it two thumbs up, ten stars, eight eagles. I don't know what all the different things are, but I, it's great. And when we first started drinking, I thought this isn't super chicory, but you know, a third of the way down now, yeah. you can really taste the chicory, and I I love it. I think it's great. It's a taste of Louisiana. A taste we, of Louisiana. That's right. right. If you're from that great state, you don't say Louisiana. It's Louisiana. Or if you're from north part of Louisiana, it's Louisiana. Right. So, so there you, you go. identify yourself very quickly. And so uh, I think you need to repeat what you were telling us, uh, Summer, about that cheese that you have on your uh, omelet. Yeah. So I've got omelet with borsan cheese. And my favorite thing to do with it, I've got two favorite recipes that I do with it all the time. One is you put it underneath the skin of your chicken as you roast your chicken breast and it's just divine it melts and keeps it moist and whatever and when you're making your scrambled eggs you put it like at the very end you put it in chunks around the scramble and you take it to the next level yep perfect thing to make for your wife guys on mother's day or anniversary morning i'm telling you they're gonna love this all right come here for the spiritual discussions but stay for the marriage tips that's what that's right marriage tips cooking tips that's right come on (laughs) thank you summer yeah okay we're we're having a discussion summer this season about the church and we mentioned the title of the series uh the church is dying or is it? One of the things that we're doing is just getting reactions from people on the concept of the church dying. And uh, is it, you know, is it really dying? Uh, is that the right way to think about it? A lot depends on how we define our terms, right? What is the church? What is what is death? But really, uh, as Ted mentioned at the beginning, pushing through the death into the resurrection, right, which is the hope that we have. Uh, but just what is your reaction to us having this discussion? Do you see a death happening? And how would you define that if you did? Yeah, you know, I would see a death in a focus on numbers, Hmm. a focus on um, smooth church and large church. And um, I think there is such a hunger for real and for being truly shepherded. Uh, And it's just really interesting when we think about the bride 
in the way we see her right now, she's really hurting after the pandemic, after the political scene, after holding so much suffering and death through the pandemic. There's a lot of questions, I think, that are up in the air and that our churches are struggling to create space for those questions. A lot of our listeners to this podcast are church leaders and pastors. What would you say uh, in terms of just offering uh, some counsel to leaders and, and what it might look like to offer that kind of space for people to ask the questions, to walk through uh, the pain and confusion and whatever else might be on the plate? So I'm going to answer it with a story from my own life. I had the privilege of going through a time period of asking a lot of questions around the church and was given the gift to go to Labrie in Switzerland. I don't know if you've ever heard of Labrie, but uh, it's a wonderful place where people are invited to bring their questions, to bring uh they're kind of leaning forward to uh, into some of these spaces around the table. And that would be my suggestion. My, my desire is to see more and more people setting tables for people to come around and feel safe and to feel like they're known to feel like they can bring this ache that they have, whatever the ache is, up into the surface. So that's what I would love to see is more time spent around the table in small groups where people really have a chance to say what's going on in their minds. Of course, I know that the leader's time is spread so thin that they have so much going on. Um, so maybe one of the needs is to find these safe people, these um, spiritual directors, essentially, who are going to create space and not have fear around the questions that people are bringing up. Let's linger, if we can, for a second on that image of the table. Uh, I, I was on your website earlier uh, this morning and noticed that, that a couple of times you mentioned that image, uh, obviously, taste and see. <laughs> We're a warm crowd towards the table, right? Actually, in our church um, documents and our philosophy of ministry, we, we say we have word, mission, and table, and we see it in um, in three different environments. Anyway, I'm not going into that all that, but um, why is that a significant image for you to, to say the table? Where does that come from in your thinking, and what, what do you think it actually describes? I think we need places that make us feel like family, that make us feel like someone has prepared for us, where there's true hospitality and someone's been thinking about us beforehand. So I think eating together is powerful. I don't know if you've read the book um, by Schmemann for the life of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's one of the most powerful books on the church, actually, and inviting people to um, to talk about having communion and, and what times of communion look like. So I just, I wonder if the church is 
the the people who are arising out of this particular time period will actually bring us back to the table. You know, it's interesting as we talk about table and communion table, um, obviously going back to Jesus, that last supper where he, he is instituting the sacrament of communion, sharing in that with his disciples. And even though the pictures have them all sitting on one side, um, or whatever, you know, they're sharing in this communal experience. And yet I think for many of us, we grew up in churches or church traditions where the communion table was something at the front of the church that the elements sat on almost in a performance kind of way, rather than this relational familial context. And, and it feels like part of what we're talking about here is in many ways, bringing that communion experience back to the context of a meal and family. Yeah. I, I love Leonard Sweet's table um, from the, ta- or his book from the tablet to the table. I think that's a really interesting book of how uh, for so long we were focused on a text and now people so desperately need to know they're cared for before they go to the text. I just adore that moment in gospel history where Jesus is preparing the table. He's thinking about the disciples who are coming. He has made this barbecue. He has brought the fish out. He has created this experience of togetherness and of hospitality. And then he literally feeds them with the fish that they brought. Uh, There's just a kindness and a shepherding to that that is so tender to me. You know, one of the tensions that I think a lot the church is wrestling with in this time of dying and being reborn is our tension with technology. And um, on the one hand, creating all kinds of subcultures online where we fight with one another, uh, where we, you know, find our niche group and, and feel very justified in being you know, angry or, you know, whatever it may be, that's very disruptive. And, and also just the impersonalization of screens and, uh, and saying something about someone that you're not looking in the face with, and you're describing the table and, um, we are, we are meeting over zoom right now, right? There's a screen between us. It's a beautiful thing. You do spiritual direction, uh, over zoom, presumably sometimes at least, um, I know you have some YouTube content and you lead people through video and uh, talk about like your ministry online and, and kind of where the boundaries of that are in our, in our church moment for you. It's such a good question. I have so many feelings around the the online space and adore uh, being embodied in person with people. So that's always my first desire is to be in person with people. But Uh, I think one of the moments that we're seeing is that uh, the bride in a lot of ways has been neglected. One of my favorite books is The Critical Journey and the way it describes coming into faith, being taught, learning to serve, and then four, coming up against a wall and having questions, five uh, coming into more of a contemplative space 
And then six of this outgoing outpouring of love from that contemplative. So what we're seeing in a lot of our churches, though, is that they're really good at one, two, and three and feel really angsty towards number four. And then five and six, there's almost a complete neglect entirely for for them. And so I think there is a finding our people, finding spaces that we truly can be nurtured as a four, five, or six on the online space that we literally cannot find embodied around us. And so there is a gift of being an embodied person who chooses an embodied world, but also decides to open up the table further and say, if there's more that need to come, come. That's for me what the online space is like, that uh, it's kind of like Jesus getting into that boat and having his message amplified up the hill, what we know about the Sea of Galilee. I've actually never been there. I've been to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, but never to the Sea of Galilee. But I understand that it's really a bowl. It's inside a bowl of hills. So when you go out into uh, a boat, your voice is amplified as it goes towards the hill. I believe the online space can be a space of amplification, of telling good news, of sharing good news, and being the type of person who is real, who's doing their own work, who is uh, going deep with their time with the Lord, but willing to show up in these and open up the table to other people. Yeah. I hear you saying an amplification and not so much a substitution or something like that. Um, and I think that's a, that's a helpful distinction. Uh, before we move on, repeat that book recommendation again, just so our listeners will hear it. You said it, the critical journey. And- yeah. It's the critical journey is a, text that most spiritual direction schools will have their students reading. And as soon as I read that text, it was like aha moments going off all over the place as I understood my own journey, but also as I understood so many of the people who were coming to me and knew how to walk with them through the space where they were, instead of kind of pushing them, I think the at least the church that I grew up in had a way of making you feel shamed for where you were Mm. and pushing you either to the next step or into the stage that they felt most comfortable with instead of just walking with people where they were. Mm. Well, and the, the whole concept of the wall, you know, is, something that most, I think most followers of Jesus are not even familiar with because I, you know, we were talking to one of our guests a couple of episodes ago about, you know, the American mindset of everything is up and to the right, you know, everything is bigger and better and it's just always escalating. And there are these movements uh, in our life with Christ and there is that, that wall that we'll hit. And, and it seems like in this moment, 
part of what's happening in the church is collectively a lot of people are hitting a wall all at once. Would you, does that make sense in, in your observation? 100%. Yeah, I think especially the evangelical church in what happened in the political scene and the Trumpism that they were seeing around them in what happened in uh, in the pandemic and seeing so much uh, suffering around them in death that all of a sudden the formulas that they were believing that if they did this and this, God would do this for them and everything would be healed and whole and perfect. So all of a sudden those formulas broke down. There are just a lot of different reasons why everyone's hitting a wall at the same time. Uh, as well as uh, recognizing that a lot of the leaders have strong charisma and they're really good at giving a word perhaps, but they're they're not going deep enough and having the support that they need in order to overcome some pretty um, some pretty major public failures. So we have, major failures. We have trauma. We have people reaching the end of their spiritual, you know, what they believe to be their spiritual journey. We, we know there's something beyond that. Um, what begins to help with some of that? What, what gets somebody past the wall? What, what begins to pick up the pieces? And maybe you could speak a little bit about your spiritual direction practice too, and how that might relate. Uh, that's such a good question. What helps people beyond the wall? You know, I mean, the truth is that it takes a lot of support and a lot of love and a lot of coming around people and saying, I'm with you at the wall. As you are in this place of dark night, I'm just going to sit here with you and I'm not going to give you a three sentence answer from a Josh McDowell book. I am going to stay with you. I'm going to love you. And as these questions come up, let's wrestle with them together. So that's what why I think spiritual directors are desperately needed in this moment. I believe that people who are willing to come alongside someone in their present story and not push them to an answer, but hold all of this. I mean, the truth is that some of this can be coming from an old wound, right? An old trauma where they wonder, well, if God allowed me to go through that, does that mean that God is not good? If God is allowing pain to happen in the world at large, does that mean that God is not good? Can I trust this God? So all we can do is stand at the wall with them and say, I, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Hmm. And you can trust me for a moment and I can hold hope for you in this moment when you can't hold it yourself. Hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, as, as we're sharing some of this, something that's come to my mind is just that to give people the hope that you're coming up against a wall, okay, 
there is something more. There is more. And, and you know, some of the things that are dying, the quote that came to my mind as you were just sharing is C.S. Lewis, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he basically said, God always serves as the iconoclast. He will in mercy shatter our understandings of who he is that we might more fully uh, move into life with him. And, and I wonder if that's part of the death that's even happening now is these old visions of God as being the person who's going to respond to my formulaic sort of, you know, way of, of approaching life with him. Uh, the understandings of he's always going to, you know, answer my prayers in a particular way or whatever else, those things are being shattered in mercy. And, and there is such goodness on the other side. Mm. Seems like the church is getting un, uh, disconnected from the American dream. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And just maybe from some strict American ways of dealing with problems and issues and that kind of thing. As you were speaking, uh, I was thinking about a recent pastoral meeting that I had with one of our congregants and... Um, she was coming from a church that had been high control, high, her dad was an elder They they had fallen out. And, you know, like there was letters that were sent, there was drama that happened. It just was a, a bad situation. Basically at the end of it, she's like, what does this mean? What's, what's next? And, uh, you know, it's just kind of like, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm here with you, you know, but I don't, I don't know fully for you. I think, you know, she was feeling like, the weight of this means the church isn't the church capital C, right? Uh, isn't, isn't good. Or I wonder if it's good. I'm wondering if I should walk away from it. And I was of course inviting her back into it, but, but also saying that doesn't mean that I know exactly what your journey is, is next, you know, in terms of how you deal with this or how we walk through this. But, uh, what I wanted to draw out about what you said summer was that, um, the space to be able to say, I don't, I'm with you in this, even though I don't know where it's all headed yet for you. And each person, when we go into that no man's land of, of, uh, of four, five, and six, is, is really, it's part of the adventure, but it's also part of the unknown. And it's scary for a lot of people who, have, who are used to churches saying to them, it's this and then this. And it's more serving and more giving and more, uh, you know, whatever it may be, uh, join this team or whatever, love teams, love serving, love giving. Um, but that for that person who beyond that, there's, there's kind of darkness and shadow and, uh, at least at first, you know, and I think what you were talking about, the patience to sit in that and speak to that with other people. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people saying, is this really it? Or is there something more that I was promised? I was promised a relationship. That's what I think is so interesting in going through people's minds. I was promised a relationship, but I was only given a list of things to do. And I'm hungry for that real relationship. How the heck do I get there from here? Yeah, I think I think a list of things to do and then like a list of things to know. You know, it's like I because I, I, I think about I grew up with that of theology of you have a relationship with God, but I was never taught what that actually means practically. It was just, well, here's the 14 verses on your identity in Christ. Memorize those and believe that that's what's going on. And here's how God relates to you. But it was all 
I shouldn't say all, I, you know, but, but to the, for the most part, it was theory, if you will. And, and I think the invitation and the kind of spaces that are created by spiritual directors and that can be created um, by pastors and leaders is where this goes past theory to lived reality. Mm. Um, and so, so the presence project, you mentioned that that's a ministry where you're, you're giving a, a lot of your energy and time. Tell us a little bit about that. So I am absolutely fascinated with attachment theory and neuroscience and the truth that we are healed, not just with information, but in relationship and creating those spaces for attachment to, for us to be able to be uh, receiving attachment from God. So that's what I'm passionate about. I'm always on the lookout for what are those contemplative experiences? What are those? I believe that the attachment practices kind of has been created in the history of the church, whether it's Ignatius's uh, imaginative contemplative prayer, which I think is incredibly powerful. If we have a moment that we can enter into the senses and receive uh, fish from Jesus on the edge of the water, receive that from him, look into his eyes, be in his presence, that creates attachment. The uh, experience of learning to rest and con contemplative prayer, centering prayer, learning uh, to help our bodies to calm in the presence of God, that creates a lot of attachment. So that's what I'm constantly asking is, how do I help to position people for the presence of God to be able to receive what he's already giving? Mm. Wow, I love that. I, we'll have to have further conversations about this summer because I'm Actually, next week, I'm leading a retreat, walking through Song of Solomon as a picture of attachment with God and actually looking at some of the things that happen in the Song of Solomon. I mean, it has so much. It's, it's got dark nights of the soul in there. It's got all these beautiful pictures. And I was spending some time with it this morning. And one of the things that struck me, and I feel like with Song of Solomon, it's like it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper the more you read that poem, that song. And one of the things that strikes me is it's a picture of mutual love between Christ and the church, Christ and, and us, his people. And I think often we think about God loves me, you know, and we may have a great theology of the love of God and, and it's, and it's spot on. And we know that God loves us, but again, it's almost theory because it's not this mutual thing. And what struck me in Song of Solomon today was there's this, this section in chapter eight where it says love is strong as death. Its flames are like flames of fire. Many waters cannot quench it. And it's this beautiful, uh, almost kind of pop out of, of theology in the midst of the psalm. But it's talking not about God's love toward us, but it's talking about the love that we share with him. So it's his love with us, our love with him. And 
it's like as we can just grow more and more in understanding that it goes both ways. And it, it's not just us thinking God loves me, God loves me, okay, God loves me, but it's this interactive thing. Um anyway, okay. I, I need to I need to shut up and, no. and I agree. And that just receiving the delight of God can do something profound for us. I think it's 214 where it says, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice for your face is lovely and your your voice is sweet, that desire of God. And when we can capture and start to receive the incredible desire of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for our heart, we respond. I mean, we jump towards, we, we can't wait to come into his presence and experience that kind of sanctuary. Well, and, and it's fascinating that when you look at attachment theory, um, face and voice, right? Those are huge pieces in attachment theory. And you see that throughout the Song of Songs, um, you know, like the verse that you just quoted. And I think about um, so much of moving past that wall into this deeper space of relationship is hearing the Lord's voice. You know, it's one thing to know theologically that God loves me. It's another thing to actually hear him say it. One of the things that I'm touching in the book that I'm writing is I started realizing that so much of attachment is built on the child's cry and the parent's response. And it's a constant cry and response, cry and response, cry and response. And there's an invitation in scripture constantly cry out, ask, seek, knock, keep crying out. And then that invitation of Hosea too, to I'm going to allure her in the desert to speak tenderly to her so that he becomes the only voice and this constant uh, looking towards he who's the only one now mm. that I can look towards and, and receive his response. So it sounds like God's not so annoyed with us when we cry out to him. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. He's, he's looking for it. He's excited to hear our voice. He wants us to stop measuring. He wants us to stop deciding whether or not our cry has merit or worth and just to lift it all up before the Lord. I mean, how sweet is it when our kids come to us with uh, a heart of desire for a for connection and they're telling us about their day the ins and outs the gifts the struggles and we just love that moment of connecting with our kids how much more and, the lord loves also not despite their imperfections but because of because of them you know it's it's in their lisping or their stuttering or you know that part of the delight is found and it, it, even in you know, them getting it wrong sometimes. They're sometimes delightfully wrong, right? So uh, there's a, I think there's a lot there. Final question. And Summer, this has been wonderful. I, I wish we could have like a three hour long podcast, but we have to, uh, you know, think about our listeners. They may not want to listen to a three hour long podcast. Yeah. Well, can... I think you mentioned uh, Francis Schaefer already to me. Uh, 
you know, Alexander Schmemann, uh, the the critical journey. I, I think we're, we're already friends somewhere. I'm, I'm a more liturgical Presbyterian, so these are all uh, ringing in my my court over here. So, uh, yeah, we could keep talking. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. Yeah. But the last thing we'd love to throw out there is uh, because this whole conversation that we're having honestly looking at what's going on in the church, talking about things like walls, talking about things like hurt, disappointment, confusion, all those kind of things. We, we're always tilting toward hope. What are, what are some things you have seen that are hopeful? Uh, what are some things you have seen in your world? I love watching people come into the presence of the Lord and receive from Him. I love how scripture comes alive when we slow it down in Lexio Divina and people receive a word that they've heard a thousand times and all of a sudden it's just for them. I just love watching how some of these ancient contemplative practices is bringing people um, that that experience of something more, even as we're in the already and not yet. We're in this place where Christ has not come back. We're longing for him. We're missing him. But I think some of these practices are giving us a chance to be in his presence and to connect with him deeper so that is so hopeful for me. I get to see so many um, older people who have been discipled and said, all this time I have been spinning my wheels and I've just been hungry, so very hungry for the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And so it's just been such a joy to watch them receive from the Lord and receive healing from him. I love what Kurt Thompson is doing in his ministry in the uh, teaching us the why behind what's going on in our brains and with shame. So that gives me a lot of hope is seeing how much his message is, is resounding really in people's hearts. I actually feel really hopeful actually that the church is struggling right now Mm. because I think that in the recognizing what's not working, recognizing the idols really that we have had about numbers and charisma, that it will give us the ability to say, okay, Lord, this wasn't it. This was the American dream somehow bizarrely meshed with the American church. How, what would you like the church to look like? What would you like my church to look like? Or how can I be the church to the people around me? Oh, I love yeah, that. I, so good. Yeah. To think about, I think maybe for a lot of people, it's they have an idea of what they want their church to look like and they're praying and asking the Lord to make it look like that. Mm-hmm. And is this a shift to say, I don't even know anymore. Lord, what do you desire? What a beautiful, hopeful. Oh, I love it. And I love that you highlight that there's not just recognition in that and sorrow in that there's actually a lot of relief and freedom in that too uh which is like maybe we don't have to 
raise $2 million for a huge gym or something, you know, like, what if we didn't have to do that? You know, uh, just as a random example, you know, maybe, maybe you would, maybe that's <laughs> something that God would invite, you know, in your scenario, but it could, you could, it could be that not every church needs that. Right. And, um, what the themes that I'm seeing and what you're saying is smaller, personal, closer, more relational, uh, more space and, you know, overall just more connection with God and with each other. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the church looks like in 50 years. I think it will be a much more connected, communion-oriented place rather than programs that we think we have to do in order to look successful. We're so grateful for your time today, Summer. Thanks for spending the time with us. And we've really valued this conversation. It was a joy. You guys are such a joy. And it's so fun to meet other people that fell in love with their high school sweethearts and are still together. What are the chances? I know. know. Yeah, well, thanks, Summer. And uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us again on uh, this podcast, episode four of season four. Don't forget that symmetry there in the numbers. I'm so weird. So this has been the Taste and See podcast, uh, season four, The Church is Dying, or is it? We hope that you're encouraged today and invite you to check out our website, sfsaz.org, where you can find resources and and find a spiritual director. If uh, you um, are sparked into thinking about that or just things that are coming up, going on, we are here to support you as you seek to walk out this journey. And where can folks best find you, Summer? Um, the Presence Project podcast. Good place to find me at Rev Summer Joy on Instagram. Wonderful. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time. <laughs>